Today, we are tackling the rest of 2012. Yes, we are still in our time machine one uh, decade back, 10 years ago. What was going on in 2012 that was exciting everybody? It was the Hunger Games. It was Katniss. It was before Watchmen. Yes, DC Comics broke with a longstanding tradition and went full steam ahead, examining uh, a series of prequels that occurred before their award-winning saga. And without without the acclaimed author, how, how did that go? Marvel had an experimental approach to Spider-Man as he hit issue number 700. That and so much more. 2012 was just full of benchmark after benchmark. It was a big year. We're going all in on today's observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Rob Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. I have been doing this comic book thing for 36, almost 37 years. Publishing, writing, creating, producing, drawing, uh, all of it. Marketing. I've been in on every aspect of the comic book world, the comic book community, and I have watched it since I was a wee young lad of uh, seven years old blow up pulling those comic books off the spinner racks back when there were actual squeaky spinner racks. Yes, they squeaked when you, it was, it was part of the, 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 the anticipation of going into the liquor store or going into the 7-Eleven that that spinner rack was going to squeak and go. I have several spinner racks myself. I am uh, obsessed with a really good quality vintage. It's gotta be vintage. I have three vintage spinner racks, one in my, in my office that I uh, proudly display comic books from my youth, uh, the 70s and 80s particularly. If you guys have ever listened to any of these episodes of Rob Observations before, you know that I take it uh, upon myself to walk you through the journey that I went through from 1974 all the way up to present day, uh, where we examine how the comic book characters of my youth in the early inception of the Marvel Universe, because, you know, you look back and, and you go, well... To me, the giant size new X-Men that debuted in 1975 that gave you the very first formation of the X-Men group that would go on to be the number one with Storm and Wolverine and Colossus and Nightcrawler. At the time, you're like, well, this is like 13, 14 years old. But looking back, I was catching it in its in its youth because now the the I mean, now you're looking back. And you're like, that's 40 plus years ago. It was 13 years from the inception, 14 years from the inception of the X-Men when I encountered it, uh, 12 years. And then boom, it's 40 in the rear view. Okay. So I have watched the culture grow. I have watched Hugh Jackman become Wolverine. I have watched Hugh Jackman retire from being Wolverine. This is a giant spectrum. Uh, X-Men is cartoons, comic books, toys just among some of my favorite things that I've experienced in this time. We are in the middle of a series called Decades, and we've been taking you through specific years in each decade that helped shift, define, uh, tilt the tastes, the the methods, the, 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 the actual pop culture that you're served. We have done 1991. Before that, we did 1986. Uh, we, we have had 
a really good time dancing with all of these. We did the year 2000 when Marvel came out of their bankruptcy and started to reassert, uh, you know, s- some some order into in, in, into into the comic book world after kind of being in a, in, a, in a disarray from like 1997 through 2000. We are in 2012. We are doing 2012, the second part, the back half of 2012 today. But really, 2012, as I said in the beginning of the first part is so defined by the avenging of it all. Avengers was everywhere all the time. They knew it. They knew that they had something special. But nowhere did anyone believe at any time that they had something special to the tune of $1.5 billion. You're like, life you're so hung up on that. No, the, the business was hung up on this. It was, I haven't seen a, as big a seismic uh, uh, impact as I did when the Avengers movie did what it did. We talked in the first part about how it really uh, uh, was it was a giant shift in in taking taking over the box office from Warner Brothers, who from 1989 on with with the Batman always had an ace up their sleeve that they could just go. Well, we have Batman and lay that down on the on the table. It was their ace that they could trump all other you know properties with. And then in 2012, that changed. The Avengers leapt. 400 million above the 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 last of the Nolan Batman films which I think is a really fun film I enjoy it I might even like it more than the Dark Knight because as I've told you guys 2008's the Dark Knight I just am not a big fan of the Two-Face section everything else I think you are on track to maybe the best possibly one of the most brilliant comic book films or or films period I've ever seen I just didn't like the the direction of the Harvey Dent storyline and the kind of it just felt like a tag on to what was already just a brilliant story, just with with the Joker and Batman. But the follow up, I thought, regardless of how you feel about Tom Hardy's delivery and voice as Bane, I just Dark Knight Rises is huge in its scope, in its scale, the the cinematography, the, the just every aspect of the storytelling, the casting. I loved Anne Hathaway as Catwoman. Uh, I just I just dug all of it. I thought Christian Bale was fantastic. I love the final shot where he's overseas, and uh, I mean it, 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 it's it, this is stuff I really really dig. I really really enjoyed the Dark Knight Rises. But no matter what tragedy befell the the, the premiere of that, as we covered in the first part, it was not a four hundred, almost five hundred million dollar dis- disparity between it. Uh, it, it that, that controversy could not have possibly, you know represented half a billion in disparity. So you go, well, Liefeld, you know, again, you're so hung up on this, but the fact of the matter was that the Avengers was uh, absolutely 100% just dominating everything Marvel did. I mentioned Uncanny Avengers. I mentioned Avengers versus X. I, I mentioned the spinoff A versus X, um, which is AVX, which is the isolated matchups that were you know, kind of half happening off to the side in the bigger Avengers versus X-Men. They wanted to give those matchups the full, you know, uh, 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 the, the, the full scope and, and attention and get creative teams to tell you like what Gambit versus Captain America would really feel like in the 13 page storyline. So ABX, Avengers versus X-Men, Uncanny Avengers, and then to end the year, they launched a brand new Avengers number one. So you're getting a lot of Avengers, but I failed to mention that they kicked off the year with the avenging Spider-Man, not the amazing Spider-Man, not the spectacular Spider-Man, 
not the web of Spider-Man, the avenging Spider-Man. That was in the title. Again, they are, they are leaning all the way into this avenging uh, motto, motif as being the defining part of the 2012 publishing schedule. Marvel was not on any level going to get caught, uh, you know, not completely just having all their ducks in the row when it came to the fact that the Avengers was on its way. The Avengers was being released in May and boom, five months into the year, it was going to dominate everything else. The Hawkeye show that we just saw on Disney plus and it, 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 uh, you know, had Haley Steinfeld and, and, uh, and, 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 uh, you know, Jeremy Renner and, and was, was caused a lot of excitement over the holidays when, when, when Disney plus debuted it, got some great ratings, stirred a lot of excitement. The impetus for that series was launched in 2012, an, an Avenger spinoff, the Matt Fraction, David Aja Hawkeye series was, uh, critically acclaimed was uh, launched in 2012. That, that, so, so, so what you're seeing, what you just saw in 2021, was a byproduct of all of the initiatives of 2012. You can see now why this year is so important, such a big part in the grand scheme of the importance of what Marvel was doing, both publishing and in the cinematic world. And there's this huge synergy going on here. I mean, one is absolutely complementing the other back and forth, back and forth. Uh Ms. Marvel, the Ms. Marvel of my youth, the Carol Danvers of my youth that only went around with the moniker of Ms. Marvel and, and didn't never had the captain attached to her. Well, prior to the Ms. Marvel that you're getting now the, on, on Disney plus the, the brand new, the teenage girl uh, version of this in 2012, the Ms. Marvel would be removed from Carol Danvers, who again, the Carol Danvers of my youth appeared in years, years long, you know, Captain Marvel, uh, I'm sorry, Ms. Marvel comic books written by Chris Claremont, illustrated by Dave Cockrum, by Carmen Infantino. These are some of my favorite comics. She gets promoted and it's even, it's, it's even here. Some of this, um, I'm grabbing from the Marvel Chronicles put out by DK publishing that goes year by year by year. I, I went to this book when we were doing the 2000s. It's a great coffee table book. If you can still find it, you'd enjoy it. And it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, goes by what they believe, what they believe is their, uh, is their significant, most significant, uh, achievements in each calendar year. So, so all of the Avenger stuff that I told you is covered in there. And then Ms. Marvel gets a promotion. They write Captain Marvel number one, a supporting uh, character from the original Captain Marvel series and a longtime fan favorite Carol Danvers had been through several costume overhauls, overhauls and name changes over the years. She went from being called Ms. Marvel to binary to Warbird and back again. But she never fully accepted her role as the official replacement to the alien hero Marvell. In this issue, written by Kelly Sue DeConnick and artist Dexter Soy, Carol finally seized hold of her destiny as the new Captain Marvel, adopting a new costume of impermeable fabric designed by the one and only Tony Stark. So again, the the Brie Larson Captain Marvel movie, that's the costume. It debuted 2012. The Hawkeye, Aja, Fraction uh, miniseries, 2012. All of the massive Avengers spinoffs, 2012. I mean, they. when I tell you that it was the year of the Avengers, don't believe me, just go back 
and look at all the hype. Marvel themselves around uh, about 2012 in their blurb, their side blurb that, that they put at the beginning of each of the years that they cover in their Marvel decade by decade or year by year. It says 2012, infinity and beyond. Over the last few years, the digital comic market was starting to grow exponentially. With the rise in popularity of handheld devices like iPads and Kindles, comic book companies recognized the potential for digital comics to be the new newsstand. Comics could once again become impulse buys for new readers unwilling to hunt down a local comic book store. Marvel was quick to recognize this growing market and began offering a free digital download with purchases of their titles. With the release of Avengers vs. X-Men, their biggest event of 2012, Marvel further raised the bar on digital interaction. On many pages of that series, an AR symbol could be found. This new augmented reality feature allowed readers to see characters come alive and view other bonus content simply by scanning and the, the images into their mobile devices. In addition, Marvel released Infinite Comics. With the help of writer Mark Wade. these digital-first comics used moment-to-moment story beats to control the pacing of a tale in a way traditional print comics simply could not. If the future of the comic book industry was going to be digital, Marvel was going to great lengths to be sure that it not only kept up with the trends, but helped create them. So there you can see some of their big talking points, some of the big things that they believe were the most um, were the most important um uh uh you know issues for for each of them in, in regards to to how they were uh <clears throat> to ha- to how they were you know presenting putting on their best face what 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 was what was the best stuff that they were giving you and so but but we can't just rely again like we said on what was going on with Marvel even though to wrap it up in in regards to the success of the Avengers and to put a big fat bow on that. And then a little, little on that analysis again of how that affected everything you're getting. We can argue, see, and there are people sometimes, I'm going to, I'm going to talk very openly about this. People say to me that you're not, not as enthusiastic about DC comics. You don't say as many nice things. I'm reporting history on this podcast. I'm not giving you, uh, uh, my opinions. I can tell you that I enjoy Dark Knight as much as everyone else. But, you know, as I was sharing with my wife over dinner the other night, because she is so kind enough to put up with some of my comic book musings from now and now and again. Uh, the thing that I love about one of my Dark Knight collections is it has all of the press in a separate uh, uh, kind of volume. That, that there's a four volume collection of Dark Knight that they put it on the that they put out on the tenth anniversary of Dark Knight. So they repackaged it, gave you Dark Knight again. So this is in 1996. And then they gave you all these different volumes of sketches, plots, you know, all the different kind of each of these different applications that went into or affected uh, the publication of Dark Knight. They gave you in a separate little volume. So it makes four volumes. One of the volumes is the press. And I was going in on, you know, going in on this volume, sharing it with my wife about the press that it got from Rolling Stone and all of the different publications, the New York Times. I shared this with you guys on a dedicated Dark Knight podcast. I literally just read to you from Rolling Stone and all the different places that reported on their, um, you know, just unmitigated praise and, and adulation of Dark Knight. I didn't create that. I'm just reporting that to you. Watchmen, what a phenomenal amazing, you know, impactful series. We've done dedicated episodes on that. When DC relaunched Superman, 
and, and gave it number one. And, 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 and the creator of that storyline, John Byrne, was on the Today Show and then did the cover to Time Magazine. See, see, the, the problem is this all happened in one year. It's not DC's fault that they decided to make all of their huge, momentous, game-changing moments in one year. But that's really kind of how it, you know, played out. Over the years, DC has been caught flat-footed in trying to compete with Marvel. That is a tale of the tape. That is statistics. And you may go, but Batman is my favorite. Great. You've got so many Batmans to choose from. You don't know what to do with them right now. Um, that's also, that, that the fact that you have so many Batmans is not my opinion. It's a fact. And and so, but but what happened with the Avengers and overtaking Warner Brothers and overtaking Batman changed everything you got since then and put sort of DC in a running to catch up mode. Uh, Man of Steel was viewed differently one year later because it didn't make a, 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 a fraction of what Iron Man made. And, I, and we covered how Iron Man 3 was the biggest beneficiary in regards to the success of the Avengers. One year later, Iron Man 3 makes a billion dollars. It, it's cracked through a rooftop. It didn't, you know, it, it, it was not, you know, conceivably capable of doing prior to that. And then Man of Steel not getting you know, to $800 million was just, wait, what? And in, instead of just going, you know, how do we nurture this and, and evolve this? It was, how do we make our movies more funny, more colorful? And the everything Zack Snyder was doing from that point on was put in a reassessment campaign. It uh, Justice League was 100% uh, adversely affected by the success of the Avengers. Warner Brothers wanted to chase those results. There is a show on Paramount Television. It's called The Offer. I have watched every episode multiple times. I love 70s filmmakers. You would not be surprised to learn that if you listen to this on the regular. Um, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls is one of my favorite books covering that entire period of the emergence of the kind of the artistes. I got I got alarms going off everywhere today. Uh, uh, the emergence of the artistes and the auteurs of, of, of that era, and, and, and whether it's Francis Ford Coppola or Martin Scorsese or Steven Spielberg or, uh, or George Lucas, th th this, this book covers, you know, uh, uh, Warren Beatty, all of the different filmmakers of the time and how they were taking over Hollywood because Hollywood's formulas were broken. Well, the offer on Paramount Plus tells you of the difficulties, all of the difficulties with the executives, the suits, the money guys, actually even the mafia and all of it. Again, my wife, now that I'm rewatching it with her after watching it all by myself, she's like, is this true? I'm like, it's all true. But it talks about how difficult it was to make a movie based on a book that was the bestseller in the United States of America for 58 straight weeks. The Godfather was number one for 58 weeks. And yet the studio struggled to adapt it because they second-guessed each themselves all the time. If something came out that was dark, that failed, they'd be like, we can't make the movie dark. Hollywood, you've heard this before, they're very reactionary. And if something works, they try and mass replicate it. If something, even one thing stumbles, they immediately put as much distance as they possibly can between that thing and, and whatever they're doing next. And that is what happened with the Avengers and affected Warner Brothers. All of the second-guessing. The accusations, the influence of Deadpool on Suicide Squad is now openly discussed by the original director, David Iyer, as the movie, as they said, we, we've got to preserve Suicide Squad because Batman Superman stumbled, which was a key, you know, uh, 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 building block to their ultimate Justice League plan. And so they really sped the movie up, fast cut a different edit and gave it a blaring soundtrack and 
inserted new jokes and the, the, the director said made it more Deadpool for the studio. The studio saw the success of Deadpool in February of 2016 and before late July, you know, they, they had four and a half months to get a movie that better reflected that, that they felt that they could stick the landing on. And so Suicide Squad made a lot of money. They, it worked. So again, now these are all offshoots of what happened in 2012. Marvel Studios put out a book. I did two dedicated podcasts on this in late 21, the Marvel Studio Saga, the saga of the MCU. Look them up. You will totally dig it. I am going into this book. It's, it's like a $300 coffee table book, so it is not cheap when you don't gasp when you look what it costs to um, to, to purchase this book, but it comes in two volumes, ridiculously um, well-researched, well-written, and again, you go, well, the winners write history. They kind of acknowledge that in here, okay? But they, they do surprisingly show their warts. But here it says, exceeding all expectations. On May 4th, four years minus a day, since Kevin Feige announced the Avengers would happen, the movie was released into U.S. theaters, earning $207 million in its opening weekend, which initiated a cascade of record-breaking achievements. They pr- they print the cover to Daily Variety, one of the biggest, most important Hollywood trades that everybody reads every Monday, and it says, box office with a vengeance. Avengers shatters domestic mark the movie business's first 200 million weekend. Okay, you guys, that's a big deal. When no one's ever made 200 million dollars before and the Avengers punches through. And then everything, you know, everything else that followed, it just said it it overtook um everything that Marvel was doing. It shifted their uh focus. It 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 got Disney to give Kevin Feige more power. He ultimately is able to separate from his boss, become uh the the guy who provides all the yeses and all the noes. He no longer has to go to Ike Perlmutter. He then influences the publishing division. He dismantles the committee uh, that was put together in publishing to approve storylines and advise on these books. And it had comic book names like uh, Joe Quesada and Brian Bendis. They were dismissed. They were uh, told to pack their bags and go home. That committee was shattered. All of that happened because of 2012. All of that happened because of what Kevin Feige was able to pull off with the Avengers in the summer of 2012. But what's going on with DC in the 2012? In, in 2012, what are we possibly looking at in regards to DC Comics in 2012? Well, that you don't have to look too far uh, to, to to find out what was going on, because again, they were in the second year and the uh, of their initiative, which was called the DC New 52. And the DC New 52 was already in a full state of retraction. So much so that by the end of that period, by the end of that year, by the end of that uh, uh, 2012, as as Marvel is launching another Avengers title, uh, the the DC is is scaling back the 52. Um, More cancellations, more reservations, about the uh, initial the initial uh, launch, and they were replacing these books with more and more and more and more and more Batman titles. Now, so in the the summer, no, the end, the winter of uh, of twenty twelve, what you're looking at <clears throat> in regards to Batman, uh, and and Marvel did something very interesting that, I, that I'm going to get to that they ended the year on in twenty twelve. But when you get all the way down 
to Batman, you had your, you had Batgirl, you had the Batman title with multiple variants, three, four different covers. You had Batman Beyond, you had Batman Arkham Unhinged, you had Batman, uh, uh, Batman Little Gotham, you had uh, Batwing, you had Batwoman, uh, and 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 it just goes on and on and on as you continue down to Nightwing and. Detective Comics and Catwoman and Robin and so again you can you can just see the length to which they doubled down in regards to making certain that they could keep pace with Marvel Comics which with all their different families was just running away with it again I do not write the news I share the news again in our first part we mentioned that Walking Dead 100 was the number one comic book of 2012 and that DC's first comic book on the marking on on the uh, in the top 20 would be about 16 or 17 because between Avengers versus X, Uncanny Avengers, the new Avengers launch, and Amazing Spider-Man, they were just storming the castle. But Walking Dead had the last laugh. And it's funny because we're going to see Walking Dead start to exert some of the influence on the same par that we're discussing with the Avengers 2012. The Walking Dead starts to exert the exact same kind of influence in other markets, in other media because of its runaway success as as a, as a show that's getting 14 million eyeballs every Sunday. But the the big launch that ended the year for Marvel was Amazing Spider-Man 700. It came in in the top five for them for the end of the year. And this storyline had Dr. Octopus, like his, his, I don't know, it was his mind, his personality, his essence went into Peter Parker's body. And... Uh, that was a big mystery that had to be solved. People went crazy for that storyline. That they, they just they liked it. It was it was it was seen as uh, something that people were really anticipating how that would play out. But Peter kind of um, is suppressed, and Doctor Otto Octavius is now alive and well, living his life out through the younger, more virile body of his nemesis, Peter Parker. That storyline was kicked off. Amazing Spider-Man 699, Amazing Spider-Man 700, Marvel sold a gazillion copies of this thing at $7.99, $8 a pop. You paid $8 a pop. It was tremendously successful. Again, your competition at the other time is, is scaling back, trying to figure out how do we keep pace with all of this success that Marvel is doing without completely giving over to making every single book Batman. Finally, in the world of television, uh, we, 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 we find that for the year ending uh for, for for the year that was uh that was ending in regards to the the um 2012 it, some some of these will come as as no you know no surprise to you what was the number one show of 2020 2012 was sunday night football the number two was american idol after all these years i think 10 years nine years american idol is still at the top the Voice had come on strong. ABC's Modern Family was number four. American Idol on Thursday was number five. The Big Bang Theory was number six. Two and a Half Men was number seven. X Factor, another, look at these talent. Again, remember what I said? If something is working, they replicate it. American Idol worked. It got The Voice. It got X Factor. It got all, all manner of different imitative shows, but they all worked. They all stormed the char charts. This is like when what, you know, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire happened and it got all those game shows in primetime. So you got X Factor was number eight, Two Broke Girls on CBS was number nine, and Grey's Anatomy was number ten. So you had football at the top. You had three different uh, performance shows. 
American Idol was de- debuting twice, so they took two of the top ten. Um, I, I would say this is not, not an era I remembered fondly, but one of the ways that Walking Dead was already flexing, and Walking Dead, again, I've, I've covered you guys, um, part of the Walking Dead success was that it took the um, the kind of a Western backdrop. Rick was a sheriff, a Western in this apocalyptic landscape. It was like cowboys and zombies. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the loss of technology the loss of access to technology and the, the, the proliferation of guns, horseback, um, cars that didn't work, the desperation for, for, you know, any sort of electricity or appliances. It was this desolate wasteland. These people were dressed like cowboys. I mean, the cover of walking dead right now, one, number one looks semi like a Western. He's a cowboy hero in, in a modern zombie tale. It was all the dressing of it. Well, the, um, the, the, because of its success, suddenly, immediately, following, do you guys remember a show called Revolution? And it was an American, uh, an American sci-fi television series that ran two years um, in a post-apocalyptic near future, 15 years at a, after a worldwide permanent electric power blackout. And people used swords and horsebacks, and it had all the visual language of The Walking Dead without the zombies. But again, the limited access to technology, the reliance on more analog stuff, more handheld, you know, uh, muskets and guns and pistols, and even the lead guy had a sword. So The Walking Dead, which was blowing up on a, as a comic book show, which was blowing up on television, grabbing 14 million, has its first giant echo in a huge network show that they spent a lot of money on to ultimately not stick to landing in revolution. Because I remember I called up Robert Kirkman. I'm like, Oh my gosh, walking dead, the footprints they're here. Revolution is being marketed to look like your show. And he would just laugh because he knew, he knew, he knew I was right. Revolution, uh, was the first of many of the, um, the, the, the echoes that would come from walking dead until AMC realized we can do all these ourselves. We could have a million echoes. We can release all manner of Walking Dead spinoffs and imitations, and we can be the ones who are, um, you know, best positioned to pilot that ship. And they did, and they did to massive, amazing success. So as we bounce around 2012, keeping you honest, you can't skip forward or skip sections. Hey, I don't know how you guys listen to your podcast. When I turn it on, I generally just go all the way through. Sometimes I stop them and have to come back, but I don't skip. And I've, I've some people I know, you know, skip to sections. They're like, Hey, maybe that's you. But in, 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 in order to keep this honest today, bouncing around the, the amazing impact of 2012, we have to talk about Katniss Everdeen and the hunger games. Okay. Which hit in April, and if you do, you remember how many times you saw this movie? Because it made four hundred eight million dollars at the domestic box office, and that number just means that a whole lot of people made their way to the theater. I had never heard of the books. Um, I, I, my first encounter with Jennifer Lawrence was in the X Men First Class film the year before, where she appeared for the first time as the younger version of Mystique, but. You know, the advertising and the the marketing were on point. It had a Logan's Run-esque vibe to it. You know, like this, you know, uh, uh, fight for your freedom, fight for the... It's, it's somewhere between Logan's Run and Gladiator. I felt like this, this is cool. This is up my alley. 
the opening weekend that it came out, my oldest son, Luke, had a, uh, which again, he's, he's whatever year it is now <laughs> through the 2000s. It's great. It's what he, cause he was born in 2000, you know, so he's, he's been covered really well in both of these podcasts. So whatever year it is, that's how old he is. So, oh yeah, Luke is uh, 12. He's 22. He's, you know, he's zero. So he was 12 and, uh, we had had a travel ball tournament with his travel ball basketball team that went to about six, seven o'clock out in Mission Viejo, which is about 40 minutes outside of our house, more towards the San Diego area. And on the way home, he and I had talked about, well, maybe we'll just grab a movie. It was just him and myself, my wife and I, sometimes we switched off, sometimes we would go together. But on this particular Saturday evening, we were coming back and I said, hey, let's why don't we check out that new Hunger Games? What, what do you think? And he's like, yeah, I'd see that. So we detoured, went to a fantastic uh, theater here in the area on our way home called AMC 30, 30 theaters at the block of Orange. Now it's called, it used to be called the block. Now it's called the Outlets of Orange. Somebody bought the rights and changed the name, but that massive AMC 30 with their four IMAX screens, it's, it's really impressive. It's really, they're more LIMAX, not IMAX, LIMAX is just a little bit bigger than your normal screen, but not the wampa mama of the super big IMAXs. Uh, some of my friends, I won't drop their names because <laughs> I know sometimes they listen to the show. Uh, they drive all the way from LA to go to the very biggest IMAX in Southern California. The only IMAX screen bigger in California. You know, you didn't know that you were going to learn something so important today, but you are. The only biggest screen in Southern California is in Northern Cal. I mean, in, in all of California is in Northern California. And I think it's like a couple feet bigger, but the Irvine spectrum boasts the largest IMAX bigger than anything in Los Angeles, San Diego, any of the surrounding burbs, look it up, put me to the test. Google will inform you that the biggest IMAX screen in our existing, you know, three to four hour travel range here in Orange County, Southern California is in Irvine. And uh, so all, we measure everything up against that. Saw Top Gun there a couple times, saw Dune. We see all the good movies there. The, a lot of the Marvel movies, the Mission Impossible movies, we go and see them in Irvine Spectrum. Uh, and and because the screen just cannot be beat. It's like five stories tall. You're climbing up these this massive, you know, steep uh, uh, bank of, of stairs. And, and you finally you finally reach your seat and you're like, yeah, like you're, you're looking out the, the window of a five story building. Like if you get the right seat um, and, and you're square in the middle on those screens, but AMC, the block has four of these mini that I, I love that somebody coined it Limax. Cause I love things that roll off the tongue like that, that say so much Limax. But anyway, we pulled in that uh, Saturday night. This is before again, reserve seating. And they showed us, you know, as we, as we grabbed the tickets, you know, that we weren't going to have great seats. These, these were not great seats. We got so young in the, I mean, so late in the evening, but we scurried inside. We had like, you know, first section, last row, like the 10th row where we were looking up big. And this is not optimal. Probably the worst seats I've had at a movie in the last decade, but wow, did we love this movie? Holy crap. I was completely caught up in the entirety of the original Hunger Games. I loved it. I, it, again, having no knowledge of the movie, the characters, anything, I was totally into it. You guys, I mean, come on, Jennifer Lawrence explodes from, from, from that point on. 
Um, you know, is it is it Liam Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth, younger brother, um, and 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 whoever? <laughs> I'm gonna get the name wrong. I'm purposely getting the name wrong. Whoever made the, the the other male lead is is his name Pippa. I don't know. It's weird. Um, th- those kids, th- 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 their their careers just rocketed. Obviously, Jennifer Lawrence was just made for the big screen. She has tremendous charisma, great face, amazing talent. Uh, just continued to grow as an actress. But that Hunger Games phenomenon again tilted, you know, everything moving forward. I mean, it really shifted and gave I mean again you know you know when they are adding parts like with Harry Potter and like Harry Potter the final book part six you know we've split it up into six parts uh Kevin Costner just announced this week that he's making a western that he's splitting into four parts like hey we got this thing how can we carve it up and get max max you know mileage at the box office so you know the last Hunger Games book, I mean, they were splitting those things up. Part one, part two. Hunger Games, that sensation, April of 2012. I mean, we were off to the races. But it was cool. Uh, again, the books, the movies, it just became that four to five year period of where it was all Jennifer Lawrence. I mean, she literally, that movie, um, then, then, then she's balancing that with Mystique and the X-Men movies wanted and needed her so bad because she had become such a big movie star playing Katniss, right? So crazy. I know it's not Pippa, but it sounded good to say Pippa. Um, (laughs) Hunger Games. That was a massive, massive, massive impactful, you know, film series. So again, you know, uh, uh, Skyfall. I mean, come on, the biggest of the James Bonds where he got kind of a Batman origin where we, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> he he had his Alfred and his manner, and they hit it. I was like, wait, what the heck? This is James Bond and, and Batman. He's got he's got a he's got his version of Alfred. It's like I've been preparing to sue Mister Bond. Um, crazy, crazy stuff. Skyfall was number four. Hunger Games, you guys. Hunger Games made just because look at this disparity. Made a hundred and. Three million more than Skyfall at number four. I mean, if you remember, and sometimes some of this is to jar you. You're like, yeah, I remember the Avengers. I remember that summer. But do you remember Hunger Games? Do you remember that spring? Do you remember how like, whoa, crazy big it was? Uh, Here's another metric. Hunger Games is only 40 million behind The Dark Knight Rises domestically. I like domestic numbers. I've talked about this on the show on, on Twitter. Look, it used to be just about domestic. The world marketplace of the last 25 years has become a thing, obviously, that the studios love to uh, slice and dice. But in case this is your very first episode of Raw Observation, I will cover with this, this with you really quickly. Like a China, for instance. They always add China into these numbers. And for instance, I, I covered recently like how China gave almost, was it over $200, $280 million to Venom? which put it in the Billion Dollars Club, but there is no proof whatsoever that China actually paid that out. My friends at the rival studios in the accounting firms, they like, we'd like to put this out there. We'd love to have that number. It looks good on the ledger. Um, I mean, I, I gotta be honest. If China was like, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll take an extra million of your latest profit comic, um, but we'll pay you in two years. I'd be like, take it. <laughs> I'd be like, I'll pay the printing. Well, let's send them over. Because, man, that looks good on the ledger. A billion, just to get to a billion, a billion, or a hundred million, whatever number I'm, I'm looking for in this case. I mean, look, a million comics would be the biggest, right? Uh, in, 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 in 
20, 30 years. So, but China pays 22% on whatever that movie, when you read that number and you say 200 million, so, so then you go, well, if China gives the money of Venom, you know, at, 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 at whatever, if it was 280, okay, so we got 10% of that is, is 28 million. So you're, you're, you're talking, you know, if, if they give that money, you know, and, and it, it's in the 48, it's in the $46 million range. So it's like $280 million in China. Yet that's not what they're getting. They're not getting anywhere near that. Now, now when you, when you go to Russia, Saudi Arabia, England, Ireland, Switzerland, all of the European territories, everybody cuts a different deal. The purest dollars that your studio makes is here at home. They love them the most. They make them the most. They get paid the fastest. The terms are the best. That is absolute. There, there are other sites, Bloomberg News, Forbes, uh, The Trades, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, Deadline. Here's the deal. They, they, they touch on it one or, once or twice a year, but ultimately the studios don't like you knowing this because then you go, oh, hey, you're your dinner party with your friends. And you're like, hey, uh, you know, but I heard really that that money isn't that much money. It's this much money. It's much less money. So they want you to think that rainbows and unicorns are coming across the, the, the out of the butts of, of the lots on of the, of the sound stages on the back of the lot. Okay. And that they're just surfing on gold, gold pots because then you like them more and you'll do more of what they say. And maybe if there's, if they split the hunger games movie into six parts instead of four parts, which they started with two parts, you'll be like, yeah, they're so successful. I'm part of it. Trust me. Trust me when I tell you that that is part of some studios grand design to get you so caught up in supporting their brand all the time, 24 seven, that that's all you can think of because then it becomes part of the conversation. And what they've realized is they want you, they want to make sure that you have to be part of every conversation. And what the summer, this summer, 2022, what no one was ready for was that Top Gun was going to dominate the conversation. They thought for sure that it was going to be a, uh, you know, a celebration of whether it was superheroes or dinosaurs. Nobody saw Tom Cruise at 60 years old, which he's going to be next week or in, in 10 days from now, sometime in, in early July, that, that, that they were not prepared for that movie to be the one that drove so much success. So again, when I'm telling you like Hunger Games made $408 million, only $40 million less than Dark Knight domestically. And then again, yeah, I mean, we've... We've looked and seen. I mean, it's just obscene. That 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 Avengers, that Avengers gross is just ridiculous. Six hundred and twenty-three million domestically. Yikes! That's so big. So anyway, okay, enough of the movies. We are going to wrap up today's podcast with something in publishing from DC Comics. Because I got to come back to DC and tell you how did they deal with those falling fifty-two numbers? The interest had waned. You know, the numbers and the excitement weren't there. The books were being canceled. You weren't getting your Frankenstein book. Um, you know, I left Hawk and Dove. Hawk and Dove, they, they, they told me, well, if you if you leave it, we're going to cancel it. I left. It was canceled. It was sad. The, uh, the you know, I, again, I was there. I was part of it. I was part of that, you know, first year and the scramble. And I did a dedicated, all, I mean, all-encompassing episode on DC52 and how absolutely insane... Uh, and batshit crazy things were during that time, and the the, the temperament 
of of their publisher or their whatever his title was, Dan DiDio, and and how nuts some of the stuff that he uh, you know expressed I felt was just a big bag of nuts. And you will too. I I am giving you. I give names, receipts. I put it all out there. Go find the DC Fifty Two podcast. You will not be sorry. I think after the Heroes Reborn. Uh, four-parter where I detail in real time what happened in 1996 and all the years leading up to it, 94, 95, um, and the fallout that carried through 97. I mean, that is our most listened to podcast. People cannot get enough of it. You should listen to it, check it out. Um, there there are memos. There are contracts I read from. There are uh, all, all manner of different communications, um, crazy letters written back and forth. I read them all to you. I've kept them all. My folder, I opened it up. I shared it with you. So sometimes these companies are completely just behind the scenes. If you think they're batshit crazy, they are batshit crazy. To replace the waning interest in the 52, they, um, you know how there's the, in, in that glass case, it's breaking case of emergency, right? You know, you're not supposed to get the hose and the fire extinguisher unless the office is, is burning down. Well, the breaking case of emergency in 2012 for DC was the Watchmen, which we've mentioned you know, previously about what a monster success that book was for them in 1986. And then because uh, the contract stated that if they continue in perpetuity to make Watchmen trade paperbacks, collect it, hardcovers, slipcase editions, all of which they did, if they continue to do that, they would never lose control of it. And Alan Moore never, ever believed that they would just continue to have that practice and hang on to it. But they did. And uh, he no longer regained control of the Watchmen because they did stick to their, you know, commitment to have it in perpetuity, which gave DC complete control over the material. But there was an unspoken rule for years, just like there was an unspoken rule for Frank Miller that no one would ever handle Electra, And for almost 20 plus years, no, you know, that that promise that Jim Shooter made to Frank Miller was honored, that only Frank would depict Electra, but at some point a new guy comes in and says, why aren't we doing this again? Wait, based on some handshake deal? No, that's not going to happen. And that's how executive culture is. Okay. They just decide if this isn't like legal and it's not binding and it's just a notion then I can, I can jump that. So they did. And in Marvel's case in the mid nineties, they did this with Electra. Well, in DC's case, the notion was that you would never ever dream of touching the Watchmen without Alan Moore's involvement or at least blessing. Now, of course, there's two people, and I, I, would, I would, you know, put forth here that Dave Gibbons did as much work, if not more. Let's go with if not more. Let's definitely stick with if not more because he drew the damn thing, and he drew it exceptionally, and he penciled, and he inked it, and he, there's a lot of rulers and a lot of perspective and a lot of backgrounds and a lot of environments and incredible faces and figures and action and action choreography. Dave Gibbons definitely did more of the work on Watchmen. If that's heresy, I'm sorry. So the thing is, Dave Gibson has always, has always been eager to cooperate with, uh, with expanding Watchmen, and now it was the time. And, and, and if you recall something that was called before Watchmen, that's because it happened. You got before Watchmen. They decided they couldn't get Alan's blessing, but they got Dave Gibbons' blessing, who I think we've already expressed here in my last blurb that he did a whole ton of work and he is the reason those those books are as brilliant as they, as as they are equally if not more so than Mr. Alan Moore. Well, Alan likes to 
you know, basically root against everything that anyone tries to, you know, do with his ideas that he's not going to do himself. Well, they announced, uh, without Alan's blessing, Mr. DiDio made the big announcement that they were doing before Watchmen. Uh, <clears throat> Alan Moore had detailed in 2010 and told Wired Magazine that DC offered him the rights to wa- Watchmen back earlier that week if he would agree to all the prequels and the sequels that they wanted to make. And Alan said, well, if they had told me that 10 years ago, I might have um, worked with them. But these days, I do not want Watchmen back. I certainly don't want it under those terms. He said DC co-publishers Dan DiDio and Jim Lee responded with DC Comics would only revisit these iconic characters if the creative vision of any proposed new stories matched the quality set by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons 25 years prior at this point in 2012. Uh, In our discussions, Alan... uh, 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 Dio and Lee have said in our discussions of any of this would naturally involve the creators themselves. Well, Alan said they left him, you know, holding the bag and, uh, they assembled J. Michael Straczynski, Brian Azzarello, Darwin Cook, Len Wein to create the before Watchmen series of books. And they did a lot of them. Rorschach, Minutemen, Dr. Manhattan, Comedian, Silk Spectre, Night Owl, and Ozymandias all got the before Watchmen treatment. And, uh, Dave Gibbons came out in support and said, the original series of Watchmen is the complete story that Alan Moore and I wanted to tell. However, I appreciate DC's reasons for this initiative and the wish of the artists and writers involved to pay tribute to our work. May these new additions have the great success that they desire. Alan responded, criticizing the entire project, calling it shameless. And he said, uh, what I want is for this not to happen. He said, what the comics industry... Has, this is how Alan Moore elaborates. What the comics industry has effectively said is, yes, this was the only book that made us briefly special. And now <laughs> he's so rad. Alan, he's got that bluster, you know. And that was because it wasn't like all the other books. Watchmen was something that stood on its own and it had the integrity of a lit- of literary, wor- literary work. What they've decided now is, let's change it to a regular comic that can run indefinitely and have multiple spinoffs. Let's make it as unexceptionable as possible. <laughs> I forgot how angry he was. Uh, like I say, they're doing this because they haven't got any other choices left, evidently. Now, the reason that I'm having to stir your memory is you, you don't remember these very well. And and I don't have any of these in collected editions. I tried them all out. I, I thought this was some ballsy initiatives. This is kind of a Hollywood thing to do. But there was before Watchmen, The Minutemen. There was before Watchmen, Silk Spectre. There was before Watchmen, Comedian. There was before Watchmen, Night Owl. There was before Watchmen, Ozzy Mendias. There was before Watchmen Rorschach, and there was before Watchmen Dr. Manhattan, before Watchmen Moloch, before Watchmen Dollar Bill. Woo! Yes, they, they went to town on these. They, they made a bunch of these. The Darwin Cook stuff is the best and the most interesting, the Minutemen. He was perfect for it, and um, his, if I had to pick, I, I liked his the best. I, I enjoyed a lot of the imagery that came out, from whether it was Lee Bermejo or the Jay Lee stuff. Um, obviously, as I said, the Darwin Cook, um, but, but they bit hard to go into doing this. And it was weird because it was so much further down the line. I mean, after, and I am a huge proponent. I've done a dedicated, dedicated Zack Snyder movie podcast where I am telling you how much I loved 2009's Watchmen. I loved it. I I think, and especially if you go, I love it, just the theatrical version, but if you go to the uncut and the pirate version with the cartoon, I mean, whatever they call all these, I have all of them on 4K. They're brilliant. I loved 
the movie, but it, you would have thought that they would have gone in on before Watchmen when they were doing the movie and Warner's had a $100 million plus investment in this film. But again, three years later, they bite down. They need to shift dollars, marketing, uh, your interest, retail, um, um, you know, uh, uh, sales, and, and, and they go all in on this before Watchmen. That was shipping all throughout 2012. I mean, you, you are at the end of the year, these books are already on their third, fourth issues, second issues. I mean, they had been all launched months before 2012 was the year of the before Watchmen. Some people I know, I know were approached and they didn't do it because they didn't want to get caught up in the controversy. The irony is that a few years back, was it 2018? It's before the pandemic, HBO did their Watchmen series and leave it to Damon Lindelof to do the absolute most inspired non-Alan Moore, non-Dave Gibbons Watchmen. I remember my kid, not a Watchmen guy, totally got into it, started watching every episode. He's either 18, 19 at the time, thought Watchmen was just amazing. And the HBO Watchmen, I, I, I hope they don't revisit it. It worked that there was, just like with Top Gun, it worked that there was 30 plus years in between the follow-up, whether it was a comic or whether it was, you know, a continuation of a comic as a TV show or the continuation like with Top Gun between two sequels. But Watchmen on HBO was fantastic. I highly, highly, highly recommend you check that out. And, and I mean, you get to do what we couldn't at the time. We had to wait every week. You get to binge that thing. You get to binge that sucker. But 2012 was when DC said, nah, Alan, we're good. We know we're going to get your um, scorn. And I, I'm pretty sure that before Watchmen did okay. I think they all did okay. I don't, you know, I there was nothing that I saw there that I loved because maybe like Alan and Dave, that they did this complete story. It was brilliant. I was surprised that Damon Lindelof Watchmen worked as well as it did, given that it was an offshoot and an extension of of a completed story. Before Watchmen was an admirable, let's give it admirable swing. It was an admirable swing with great creative teams. I highly recommend looking at the Darwin Cook stuff the, the, the most. He is uber talented, maybe the most talented of any of the talented people that they assembled to do this. But uh, it was it was an initiative that really didn't have any follow-up because I think the acceptance wasn't there. I mean, they tricked it out. They gave you Jim Lee variants. They gave you all manner of variants. They really wanted this thing to take flight. But there were other proposed before Watchmen uh, follow-ups to the ones that I just read to you that did not go forward because uh, b- 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 because the the interest that they gauged that the interest wasn't there given kind of the ongoing to as the as the before Watchmen series rolled out you're always you're always going to get the most you know you know most interest with your early issues. And as it went out and they got into the later issues, the interest wasn't there. So they didn't do Curse of the Crimson Corsair or Before Watchmen, the epilogue. Um, you know, but uh, but but look, they, they put their they, their brave face on and they made a lot of stuff. I mean, again, you got Jay Lee, you got Leighton Ween, you got the Cooper brothers, you got J.G. Jones. A uh, whole lot of people took some big swings before Watchmen happened in 2012. So there you go. We have wrapped up the year of 2012 we have looked at the experimentations the big swings the brand new franchises like the hunger games the seismic shift for marvel at the box office which dictated pretty much everything you saw following 
that year, especially in the first part of this podcast, when I talked to you, ex- you know, extensively about that echo one year later with Iron Man three, just bursting through, you know, 1.2, whatever billion dollars that it made and, and jumping, you know, multiple hundreds of millions on the back of now Avengers was the franchise franchise. It had the juice Marvel movies started opening bigger, playing longer, and it was all on the back of the Avengers 2012 Marvel publishing invested deeply in making sure that you had avenging things at all times, avenging Spider-Man, uncanny Avengers, you know, Avengers versus X-Men, a versus X, uh, a new Avengers one shot for their Marvel now initiative. You weren't, I mean, Hawkeye series that Ms. Marvel, you know, graduates to captain Marvel. Uh, the DC 52 is slowing down before Watchmen stepped in to make up for some of that ground. What a crazy year, you know, again, football was your number one football was your was your number one uh you know uh uh, uh t- t- television option and and as i've covered with you guys i mean uh you know you you, you just you got to remember we talked about it in the first one it's worth you know worth re reemphasizing imagine dragons na 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 okay if i do any more I, I could get you know Served by the music company, but yeah, there's um there's only a certain amount of seconds you can do. Bruno Mars, Imagine Dragons, Taylor Swift, Lana Del Rey, Pink. That's your top five. One Direction, number six. Remember, we did this in the first part. We covered your music, your movies, your television, and your comic books. Damn it! What a good time! What a good time! 2012 um, was a really significant year. And again, as I've told you here, whether it was the Hunger Games, the Avengers dominance, the new plateau for Marvel the publishing initiative for for Marvel publishing to to really ye- yield and, and 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 lean in heavy to Avengers in a way that 12 years ago they believed they did not that they left all manner of opportunities you know uh, uh behind them when they did not effectively capitalize on X-Men's surprise success so so it, it really really a, a ton of of uh a, a ton of uh, kind of evolution. You see this tons of, of evolution. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm just, I'm just excited that all you guys have been coming along for this, for this ride. And uh, I am so excited by, by the ways that you guys continue to support us each and every week. When you guys leave, uh, when you guys leave reviews on the platform, it helps us so much. It helps us be seen. It helps our, our our awareness. And you guys have been so great. We get great reviews. You guys are so generous. You're so positive. And when you leave these reviews, I read them here. I read them here on the age uh, on the age. <laughs> I, uh, you know, read them here uh, at the end of each show as I'm about to read with this extremely generous. Uh, share by Giuseppe. Who doesn't want to say Giuseppe? I said Giuseppe. Giuseppe wrote the best. Listen, gives us gives us five stars. Just amazing. Uh, uh, an embarrassment of Richards here. Here from Giuseppe, the best. Listen, I've been waiting to write a review until I finally figured out why this podcast is the best comic podcast in the business. And he writes this in caps. Eureka! Multiple exclamation points. I have done it. Not only does Rob tell great stories as an awesome creator, publisher, generational game changer, and comic book professional with friends, foes, and gossip, but here it is. It's the secret sauce. 
He was a better comic book fan than most of us. His stories of what he did as a fan put most of us to shame. Rob reminds us of what we love. Comic books. Gateway to the imagination. Five stars, baby. He writes that. Five stars, baby. Giuseppe X left this on the Apple platform. He hails from Canada. Giuseppe, you could not be more generous to me. I love my fan days. I love running around with professionals, hanging out at their tables, meeting all of the professionals. We are all fans. We have all been fans, no matter what it is, okay? And thank you, Giuseppe. When you guys write a review like Giuseppe just did, and you post it on these platforms, I find it, I read it, I share it. It's at the end of every episode. Now, I I mentioned earlier, I don't know if some of you guys skip. Hey, maybe you guys skip and see if I, I read yours. I don't know. One guy actually told me that that's what he did. And, and when I met him recently, he was so kind to me. You guys, I went to, in the last several weeks, six weeks, I visited Houston, Texas, Bedrock City. Uh, I went to San Antonio Dragon's Lair. I went to uh, see the wonderful people at, at Zeus Comics in Dallas. I visited uh, the, the this last week Austin Books and Comics in you know in in Austin and in North Carolina. I went and saw the people at Acme. So I have been actively seeing you guys. Why do I do comic stores? I do comic stores because you don't pay. Uh, a price to get in. I, if I go to a convention or I go to a store, I bring a bunch of my exclusive. My exclusives are, are 40 bucks because I only they're only available through me. I, I, I drew a Venom and a Deadpool cover or whatever, and it's only available through ordering it through me. I will then bring those to the show. I have charged $40 for my exclusives for six years. It's a hard and fast number, but when I bring them to a convention, you may have had to pay $35, $50, $50 just to get into the show. Then you're paying $50 to park nowadays. So it costs you $100 to get into the show and then eventually buy the same thing I'm going to bring with me to a comic store where the parking is free and the entrance is, is free. Also, just so you know this, any of those stores, not one of them had a cost put upon them. When I do this, I absorb the cost. I, I pay for the flights, the meals, the, the, the lodging with me and my guys who come with me to these shows. And then we present this to you as a, a gift. I try and give a free signature on a recent book that I'm doing. I've been doing that for the last several years, whether it was last year when I went through Florida, I went to Arizona. The comic store model is one that I am committed to. I'm going to continue to do this. So when I put up my tours, continue to look for them. I'd love to see you. I don't have any more planned at this time. Uh, that was kind of my big surge. I had a lot of stuff going on. I had an unfortunate death in my family. I had the graduation of two of my children and uh, the, the, the summer has just kicked off. So I am going to plan the late summer, fall tours. But when I come to stores, that's the model. I ask nothing of the store, but to give me some tables and to host me. And again, my $40 comics that I'm going to have at my convention appearance are also at the store, but you get to walk into the store free of charge and free parking. And so look for me when I come to a comic store near you. I'm going to continue to find stores that um, are cool, run by cool people, have great staffs. I've been so fortunate. All of those stores I just mentioned to you. Austin Comics and Games, Acme Comics, Zeus Comics, Dragon's Lair in San Antonio, and uh, Bedrock City were the just the best staffs, the best owners. I just want to say thank you to them right now here on the air. Thank you for having me. Thank you to all the great fans that came out and saw me. You guys, I am all over social media. Find me on Twitter at Robert Liefeld, the whole name at Robert Liefeld continuous. I have a blue check next to my name that says I'm really me. Instagram at Rob Liefeld. I got the shorter version of that at Rob Liefeld has a blue check also says that it's really me. I read your mentions, your, uh, your, your comments, your DMs, all of your back and forth. 
Um, thank you so much for interacting with me in the way that you do on social media. I love it. I enjoy it so very much. Let's keep it up. This this podcast has a dedicated page on Facebook. Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld has a page. Like it, leave a comment. I will find it. I will read it. I will try and respond to you as quickly as I possibly can. There is a Rob Liefeld, is it colon, semicolon, an extreme group. That is my group on Facebook. We are adding people all the time. It is moderated by myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. So that's when you'll know, hey, I found the group. This is the group Lifeheld was talking about because there's other Lifeheld groups. This is the one that I am the moderator of. Come join us. We share art, stories, history, um, all manner of stuff that covers everything I've ever done, including everything I've ever done with my Extreme Studios, Marvel, DC, uh, you know, IDW, Image Comics. So come find us over on Facebook. Say hi. We'd love to see you there. You know, at the end of every episode, I implore you, take care of yourself, your mind, your body, your emotional well-being, your spiritual well-being, address them. My recommendation is always going to be the funnest. Relax on your couch, on your beanbag, on your sofa chair, eat some great food, watch some great streaming, some TV, some fun movies, read great comic books, novels, just whatever, feed your creative soul. And by feeding your creative soul, find a distraction to all of the craziness in life. We are living in crazy, crazy times. I am rooting for you. I am rooting for you. I hope you get that time this upcoming weekend. Uh, whenever it presents to you that you can just chill out and have a bag of chips, eat some gelato, some ice cream, some cookies, just enjoy, kick back, take in life's fun and life's pleasure. And it's summer. It's summer. This is the best time of year. It's my favorite time. It'll never not be my favorite time. You guys, please Swing back around. See me next time. I'll be here and we can talk again real soon.